I want to talk about um, mindfulness, which is what we do here in um, the inside tradition is this practice of mindfulness as the, the meditation that we practice, vipassana, insight meditation. One of the basic, 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 basic teachings of the Buddha. And really it's um, the direct path to realization. That's uh, the subtitle of Bhikkhu Analyo's book, Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization. So it's the instructions to freedom, to liberation. And it, even though it's very familiar and we do it m much of the time when we sit, in fact, it's, it's so common that it's often the practice that's used in you know secular mindfulness is this breath and body awareness and this this settling um but it's incredibly important and it's it's and i think it's helpful um to revisit the the teaching on a on a regular basis even though i've been doing this for a number of years i find it helpful to look again at the different uh, found the four foundations of mindfulness or the four establishments of mindfulness sati is the word in Pali that means mindfulness and I, I, I that's what I wanted to talk about this week and then this morning I went to a group that meets monthly um, in Los Angeles it's been going for many 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 years it meets the first Sunday of the month it's uh, BIPOC and allies as part of Meditation Coalition. And uh, we talk about, it's a, it's a Dharma group, but it talks about things that are happening in the world and the impact it has on people um, and how practice supports moving through the world and the reality of our days, of our times. And this morning there was a, a couple um, uh, a married couple, two men, um, a biracial couple. And I've known them for also maybe 10 or 12 years, and they've been married probably for 10 years. And they were talking um, about the impact that this white supremacist culture has on their relationship as a, as a, as a, um, a, a man of color. He's a Southeast Asian and a, and a white man. And the impact that that even in this very intimate of relationships has um, uh, permeated it because it's the systemic conditioning that we all exist, um, we all experience, and how it even comes into these very diff, diff, uh, excuse me, intimate relationships. And so um, when James was talking about um, the impact and how he was, you know, um, starting to, he, he talked about how important the Dharma was, how important this meditation practice was to help him see what was happening, to help him see his conditioning, and to help begin to dissolve it. And then his husband, as a white man, was talking about the same thing. We don't see the water we swim in until we stop and begin to recognize where we may have this discomfort, where we may be uncomfortable. And I was talking to James after, and we were talking about he's, how we work on this stuff for years and years and years, but it's because it's the roots are so deep. It's going to take years and years and years, which is why it's so important to keep 
the focus on this this mindfulness, this insight, this willingness to turn towards what might be uncomfortable, to turn towards things that might we may not want to look like, that we've been conditioned to bypass, to turn away from. And so um, it's with that, that um, it was almost like a, a doubling down this morning as I was reflecting on it, is like, yeah, this stuff that we do when we come and we sit and we practice is life-changing. If we're willing, and I mentioned before, willingness, if we're willing to make the effort and to just be where we are and to sit with what's going on. So I want to kind of go through the, the, the Satipatthana to go through the, the foundations of mindfulness, the establishments of mindfulness. And the other day, as I was thinking about this the other day, I was actually it was in a class with Lama Rod Owens. It was a Zoom class. Um, some of you may know him. He's a wonderful teacher, and he was kind of talking about this thing. And he was um, he asked two questions, and he asked the the first questions was what do we do to ensure we're present in the moment, and the second question was how do we ensure we we, we how do we ensure we respond wisely in the moment? And for me, the answer is this practice, this willingness to be present, sati. Sati, which is translated usually as mindfulness, is it what is a, a meaning of it. It also means to be with. How can we be with? Not what we think we want, not what the stories we have, but how can we be with the experience of this moment? And <clears throat> it's incredibly important. And, and this, this, this incredibly logical path that the Buddha has, has offered us as this tremendous teaching is part of the Eightfold Path, but it's really the, the, you know, without mindfulness, it's almost impossible to do anything else because we're not paying attention. We're not allow. We're not being with. We're somewhere in our head, and so, which is where we spend so much of our time. You know, and I, I also found this the other day. I got this thing from a workshop I did. I don't know how many years ago, and it's uh, the author is unknown. But I want to read it because without mindfulness, this is kind of where we hang out, and it's called change. And it says, if you always think what you've always thought, then you will always feel what you've always felt. Then you will always do what you've always done. If you always do what you've always done, then you will always get what you've always gotten. If you always get what you've always gotten, then you will always think what you've always thought. And it's like this, this circle that we're in. It's this circle that we constantly go around in. And if you think about it, and I invite you to think about this in your own lives, it's that, that story that just never goes away. It's that deep conditioning, whether our familial conditioning, our societal conditioning, whatever it is, it's this story of... Um, we were talking this morning about being nice, always being nice, you know, it's like being nice. That's, that's kind of a deep part of my conditioning. It's also a part of a lot of white women are conditioned to be nice. There's a book called White Women 
Um, it's uh, and there's a there's a documentary uh, called Deconstructing Karen where they talk about this aspect of white women being nice and how dangerous that can be without speaking up and and saying things that need to be said. But um, anyway, so if we don't pay attention to what we're doing, what we're thinking, the thoughts that go through our head, we're going to keep doing the same stuff. Nothing, you know, the saying nothing changes if nothing changes. So this practice of mindfulness is this invitation to change, this invitation to look deeply at what's going on. And sati, mindfulness, begins to ground us and take us away from that autopilot that we run on. You know, when we let autopilot run, something happens, something unpleasant is said to us, or we have an unpleasant experience, or we don't get what we want, or somebody doesn't return our phone call, it's like, ugh, they don't like me, I'm not good enough, what did I do wrong? You know, all these stories, and and we have our own, those are kind of my go-tos, we all have our own go-tos, and they can be really painful, really painful and oftentimes we we go oh why are you thinking this and then we let you know that second arrow we we have the discomfort and then we lay the the second arrow on and we judge ourselves or whatever it is and so mindfulness invites us to say we're going to do something different and what we're going to do is begin to move towards clarity and this practice satipatthana the foundations of mindfulness create the conditions that allow for the arising of wisdom, the allows for the arising of clarity, cleaning the dust out of our eyes, seeing reality as it is, and, and ending suffering. Um, whereas I have this quote from um, uh, the uh, Mindfulness in Plain English, if I can find it, uh, I'll find it at some point. But it's like this invitation to be, this sati is an invitation to be with reality rather than what we think reality is because they're not necessarily in the same room. So the first foundation, which you are all familiar with, is the breath and body foundation. This reconnection with the, the this fathom-long body. The Buddha said, our, our awakening can be found in this fathom-long body. We're so disconnected in our society from our bodies. We, we are moving towards this intellectual, you know, my, I think I've probably mentioned it before, my theory of why aliens look the way they do with these ginormous heads and these, these skinny little bodies is because, you know, we're focused so much on the brain and the intellect and we're totally ignoring what goes on from the neck down, but there's so much wisdom in the body. That's where the trauma is uh, stored. That's where, you know, generations of experience, generations of, of, of um, wisdom is. So we have to relearn to connect with it again. So the first foundation is breath and body. Out of the head, which is full of mental constructs, and we begin to calm the body, we begin to relax the body, we begin to know what our bodies feel like. We begin to recognize the sensations in the body. It's an anchor. 
and it's the breath in the body, it's the body, and, and as best we can, we begin to connect with it. A lot of times, there's a, um, a body scanning meditation, which can be really helpful for this. When I was really first getting into the body, I had to use, I had to listen to a body scanning meditation every day, because I was like, kind of clueless. I would have sensations in my body, but I would ignore them. I was really good at ignoring them. I ingested a lot of alcohol in my time to help me ignore that, and I ingested a lot of food in my time to help me ignore that. But to begin to um, become familiar with my body. And we live in a society that tells us only certain bodies are okay, and we have to strive for that, and that's a load of crap. Um, and so to relearn to just be at ease with our own body. I'm I feel like I'm giving um, book things you should read. The Body is Not an Apology by Sonia Renee Taylor is an excellent book about, you know, reconnection and relearning to love the body. Whatever it is, again, sati, be with what's here. Be with what our experience is. And so when we begin to sit with this physical experience, we begin to notice sensations. Notice pleasant, notice unpleasant. And that takes us into the second foundation, which is Vedana, which is feeling tone. So we're anchored in the body. We're, we're, we're open to the full experience of what's right here, dropping out of the story, dropping out of the head, beginning to calm the body, steady the body, and then we're open up, we're open to the full experience. Some things we begin to notice may be pleasant. Oh, it feels good to sit here, or there's a sound that's pleasant, or a physical sensation that's pleasant. Most often, though, we're, we recognize when things are unpleasant. So this is Vedana, recognizing when things are pleasant and unpleasant. And this is incredibly important because this drives so much of our reactivity. If something is pleasant, we tend to grasp towards more. I want more, I want more, I want more. If something's unpleasant, push, 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 push. We don't want it. <coughs> this goes back to, you know, primordial. You know, if there's danger, that's unpleasant. We have to be on the lookout for that. And, you know, push it away, get away, run. Um, pleasant, that's going to you know, help us live, help us survive. But this is, you know, sometimes it gets too much. And, and so we have to be willing to recognize and sit with the unpleasant. Sit with the, sit with the noise. Sit with, the, with the, the, the itch that we don't scratch. I mean, it's not about being so stoic and like, I will never succumb. But instead it's about recognizing the tendency to react the tendency to react to particular things, like particular music or particular voices. I had a relationship where the person left me for someone from Boston with red hair. So for a really long time, I had problems with red-headed people with Boston accents because it triggered this pain in my gut. It was totally irrational, but that was my... Ooh, aversion, 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 unpleasant aversion, push it away, push it away. Or something good happens, it's like, I want more, I want more. So how can we be cognizant of this? This pause, 
this steadiness of the body, and then the recognition. And we begin to see this. We have the power when we pause to choose and respond wisely. I'm not going to start yelling at this poor person with red hair who's from Boston. I'm just going to treat them. I'm going to recognize what's happening. Ooh, this is unpleasant, but I don't have to take it personally. Mindfulness breaks us out of this reactivity, begins to break us out of this conditioning. And when we're really paying attention, we can see the, the impermanence of the feeling tone. Sometimes pleasant turns to unpleasant. Sometimes unpleasant turns to pleasant. You know, eating, the other night I was eating an ice cream and it was yummy, yummy, yummy till the brain freeze started. And it's like, is it the, is it the ice cream that's evil? All of a sudden it used to be good, now it's bad. No, it's my reaction to it. So we begin to not um, demonize the things that are unpleasant and, you know, um, canonize the things that are pleasant. Instead we have this recognition. And then there's also neutral, which we oftentimes miss totally. Because sometimes it feels like boredom. We'd rather have unpleasant than nothing at all. So to recognize, oh, right now there's just calm. Not pleasant, not unpleasant. So there's a power in this pause. There's a power in this recognition of pleasant and unpleasant. which And an impersonal quality to it which then kind of supports us as we move into the third foundation, which is recognition of the moods of the mind. Recognition of things that are arising. Reactivity, perhaps. You know, recognizing when there's happiness. Recognizing when there's crankiness or sadness or joy or anger. Jealousy. Conceit. All these things. The Buddha talks about... Um, uh, know a mind with anger, know a mind without anger, know a mind that's contracted, not contracted, distracted, not dis distracted. But those are just a few examples. It's really the whole range of emotions that arise. And so to just recognize what's present. Again, there's the steadiness of the foundation of, of breath and body. There's the openness to the, who is this pleasant? Is this unpleasant? And then there's the quality of recognition of what is this? This is anger. Maybe there's a tightening in the gut or a tightness in the chest or the jaw or the fists or something. Ooh, that's what anger feels like. There's a, you know, recognizing what joy is. Ooh, that's a warmth coming over the body. Ooh, okay. So we become familiar. Instead of being dragged around by these things and reacting, there's a clarity that we now have. And again, there's an impersonal quality to this. Instead of saying, I am, we say that this is arising. Instead of, I am angry, which is we then take birth as an angry person, we just say, oh, there's, I'm experiencing anger. So there's a different perspective with that, a different way to relate to the emotions that are showing up. Um, we, don't, I, we don't have to identify with the moods. Um, there's a, and there's an honest acknowledgement 
of the emotions without shame and judgment. Because again, because of our conditioning, our societal conditioning, our familial conditioning, we've been told some things are okay, some emotions are okay, some emotions are not okay. And a lot of times we get that from our family. You're not allowed to feel anger. Or particular people in the society are not allowed to feel anger. Or you're not allowed to feel this, or you're not allowed to feel that. Or you're allowed to feel it, but you're only allowed to feel it for three days. I remember when I was in chaplaincy training um, years ago, someone in, uh, came in to talk to us and asked us to reflect on how we handled grief in our family. What were you allowed to grieve? Were, were there certain forms of grief that were okay and others that were not okay? Was there a time limit on your grief? And when you begin to ask those questions, you begin to look at how your responses or how you view things and go, wait a minute, I, this has been proscribed. Again, we are putting ourselves in these little boxes by what we hear, what we're taught, what we're told, what we read, what we learn, which may not be true or valid. And instead, we have to honor the reality of this moment. Sometimes things are uncomfortable and we don't want to feel them. That spiritual bypass, how can I, how can I um, own my way out of this? I can meditate a lot more and, you know, stuff down feelings. This, this foundation has said, meet this thing, meet this feeling, meet this emotion with friendliness. Not shame, not judgment. You can't help what's present. There are these seeds of consciousness. Thich Nhat Hanh talks about them in this one school of, of, um, of Buddhism. There's these, there are these seeds of consciousness, these, these things that are planted because of our experiences, our conditioning. And when conditions are right, they arise. We can't help it. I never get up in the morning and say, I want to feel jealous. I want to feel less than because, oh, it's so rewarding. It just arises because of circumstances. So we have to recognize that. And when you recognize the emotion, there can be a settling of the emotion so you can respond from a place of peace, a place of ease, a place of wisdom. And again, we always have to pay attention. There's... Um, we don't just get it and it's done. It's like, oh, I'm done with jealousy. I'm done with this. It's like James and I were talking this morning. It's work of years and years and years because these things, we can't tell when they're going to show up. It depends on causes and conditions. And it's like, okay, this is what's here. It's unpleasant, but I don't berate myself for the feeling. It's how I work with it. Karma is action. Karma is how we deal with this moment. How do we relate? How do we work with what's right here? Mindfulness offers a way to relate to this moment and work with what's showing up with wisdom, with compassion, especially if it's challenging. And, it teaches, and, and with joy. Sometimes we have difficulty with pleasant emotions. Some of us do because you're not supposed to feel that in this situation. You can't help it. There, there's, I'm really happy to see there's a huge push for joy right now. Um, joy is really important. It's not something that we put 
away and um, work towards somewhere else. It's like if it's here, be with the joy that's here right now. Really important. And then this fourth foundation in the sutta, it talks about the aggregates. It talks about the four, be aware of the dhammas, the aggregates, the foundations of mindfulness, the hindrances, the um, the um, four noble truths, and the seven factors of awakening. But I love the teaching of Bhikkhu Analio, who's this very wise monk, and he talks about and and some of the nuns like Aya Ananda Bodhi and Aya Santachita, who live in Northern California, have talked about. Really, the fourth foundation is um, understanding the habits of the mind and the mental states and recognizing what takes you away from liberation and what takes you towards liberation. So Abhiko Analio likes to talk about just looking at the hindrances and looking at the factors of awakening. So to, be, to recognize when these are present or when they're absent. The recognizing the hindrances when you're caught in craving, whatever it is. Oh man, I want that job. Oh man, I want that ice cream. Or caught in aversion. I hate that. I don't want this. I want. I don't want this to happen. Those types of things. How whatever form they take, really when we look at it, it's not necessarily so blatant, but a dis discomfort with just, you know, the way it is. This discomfort of being in our own skin. Dukkha, un, not happy with the way things are. Aversion to the present moment. When you're impatient, that's aversion to the way things are. Um, so really beginning to see the subtle nuances of how these things show up. The other hindrances are restlessness and worry. Um, dullness, checking out, torpor, you know, kind of avoidance, numbing out, and then doubt. I was talking to someone the other day who's been through all these experiences and she was doubting the teachings, doubting the Dharma. You know, and that's a that's a hindrance. So recognizing that that's a hindrance. And I was also taught I was had my teeth cleaned on Tuesday and I was listening to the, the dental hygienist and I were chatting before she started and she was talking about going to Mexico to see her um her partner's meet her partner's parents, but she was worried about her dog and would he be okay when she was gone? And la 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 la. And so she was full of fear around that. And then we were talking about hiking. And I said, Yeah, I like to hike. I go, do go hiking alone. And she's like, Oh, I'm so afraid. I'm, I might fall down. And blah 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 blah. And I'm, and then listening to her as she's. And I'm, I was thinking, Oh my God, there's so much fear. There's so much worry. It's a life that's built on this place of worry. And we may not even realize it because it's like, Oh, well, it, you know, I might fall down, or the dog may may not be happy if I'm gone because he's so attached to me. They can be simple things, but they still gnaw at us. And if you, because you're so grounded in your body now, and because you're aware of the um, unpleasant and pleasant experiences and sensations, you can pause and say, what's going on? Oh, there's some worry about this. There's some fear about this. That can be, you can name it, you can call it a hindrance. And instead of taking birth as a person who's so fearful about something or who doesn't like something or thinks this needs to be gone now, we can just recognize that aversion, that hindrance of aversion that makes it so uncomfortable to, uncomfortable to be in your skin. And just say, okay, can I let go of that? 
So to recognize the hindrances, because that's what gets in the way of liberation, and then, then to began, begin to recognize the factors of awakening. And the factors, the seven factors of awakening, the first one is mindfulness. Because if you're not paying attention, you can't get here. So really grounding, being present. What is this moment? What is this experience? The next is investigation, curiosity, asking that question. Like, like they... Um, Suzuki Roshi talks about in um, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. What is this? Letting go of preconceived ideas and saying, what is this? Oh, is that an old story? Is that that fear again in a different, in a different outfit so I didn't recognize it? And then effort to come back again and again because it's so easy to get drawn into these things. That's how we operate as human beings. It's helpful but to be willing to come back, come back, come back. And then when you can recognize, let go, be fully present with the moment, even if it's unpleasant. There's no, there's no preference. That's one of the, my favorite um, definitions of equanimity. Uh, an intimacy with the present, an intimacy with our experience without preference. Once you can come into that place of no preference, there's a spaciousness that arises because you're not clutching onto a particular point of view or preconceived idea. There's a spaciousness that opens up which allows for a joy, just a being open and a tranquility. I invited that in the meditation. Can you touch in that stillness when you're not pushing or pulling or moving to the future or the past? Just being right here. You know, and I've, 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 I was talking to a friend of mine, texting with a friend of mine who's sitting with a woman he's known. I think she's in her 90s and she's probably going to pass in the next couple of days. And he said, just sitting with her in the present moment, there was this feeling of ease and tranquility. Even though there's grief, even though there's sadness, there can be this place of ease if we're willing to let go of shoulds and coulds and if onlys and what ifs. There's a joy, a tranquility, and there's a collectedness of mind because we're present. We're not multitasking in our brain. And the last, the last piece, the last factor of the seven factors of awakening is equanimity, that place of no preference. So recognizing that, recognizing what it feels like to have joy, recognizing what it feels like to have some tranquility of not being in the future or the present. I remember distinctly having those moments. The Buddha talks about that too, remembering on the night of his awakening or before he sat down to awaken when he was a kid watching his father and just sitting to the side and just having this sense of being fully in the moment and going, that's it. And so this mindfulness is this path to realization, is this path to freedom and liberation from pushing, pulling, this, that. But it takes effort. It takes willingness. It can be complex, you know. It takes time. We who want the microwave miracle have to get used to this taking time. I didn't get here overnight. This conditioning, again, sometimes is generational. 
that I'm working with, that we're working with. So can we just be patient and do with do with, with this moment where we are right now? And um, what happens is we begin to live life with a spaciousness, an open-heartedness, a wisdom, a clarity, a compassion. It doesn't mean things get all la 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 la. Shit still happens. There's still incredible injustice in this world. It's it's ramping up right now. We know that. We see it in our society. It's crazy out there. It doesn't mean that we don't work to end suffering. I was I was uh, very lucky to have um, sat with Bhikkhu Bodhi earlier this month, early last month. He was in he was um, he was actually a Dhamma. He was out at Mahapajapadi. Um, in near Pioneer Town, um, some of you may know who Bhikkhu Bodhi is. He's a monk who's translated many, many, many of the suttas, and he's great. But he talks about how this is a practice not only of our own liberation, but our lib- but we work for the benefit of all beings, and it's a call to Buddhists in this in this generation to end injustice, to end suffering where we see it. So it's not about sitting back and just staring at our navel and, and working towards our own enlightenment, but it's about seeing where things are not working, seeing where there's harm being caused. Because we have a clarity now, we have a wisdom, and we have a compassion, and we have an equanimity so we walk in balance. We have an appropriate response. We can, we can wear the world as a loose garment while we also work towards changing it where it needs to be changed. So... So we don't keep going, thinking those thoughts that we've always thought and doing those things that we've always done. So thank you, my friends. I invite you to um, spend some time with mindfulness. Spend some time reflecting in your lives with your practice what is important, what's coming up for you, where your practice is. Start where you are. That's the only place you can start. Start right where you are and uh, keep it simple and Keep it kind, keep it gentle, and um, I wish you I wish you much luck and um, I wish you much ease. So thank you, my friends. Thank you for visiting Undefended Dharma. These teachings are freely offered. However, if you would like to make a donation to help support the technology that makes these podcasts possible, please visit marystancavage.org backslash support. Thank you.